So Lord God, we thank you that you gave yourself away and we pray that we would give ourselves away. We pray that you would help us to preach. We pray that you would help us to see you, to become like you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's review. In the Revelation, uh, John hears a voice saying, come up here, and he sees a, a slaughtered lamb that opens a seal, a scroll sealed with seven seals that had been in the strong right hand of God. When uh, he opens the seventh seal, he sees seven angels take seven trumpets and prepare to blow them. Okay, okay, you remember that, right? They, they blow uh, the trumpets on the day of atonement, which was the day that the high priest would go behind the veil in the inner sanctuary in the temple uh, to make atonement for the sins of the people. And he did that by sprinkling the blood of sacrifice upon the mercy seat on top of the ark of the covenant, which was the throne of God and judgment seat of God on earth. The Israels also blew seven trumpets before the Ark of the Covenant on the seventh day after walking seven times around the city of Jericho at the edge of the Promised Land. It was a proclamation that atonement had been made, and it was then that the dividing wall of hostility came tumbling down. The angel of Yahweh was not opposed to the Canaanites, nor was he opposed to the Hebrews, he was opposed to the wall. For on one side of the wall was his great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, and on the other side of the wall was his great-great-great-great-grandmother, Rahab. Uh, the angel of Yahweh in flesh is Jesus. The walls came tumbling down, and the kingdoms of this world became the kingdom of something else which is a foreshadowing of the kingdom of God. God destroyed what was evil, but this is a great mystery hidden for ages and, and generations. He destroyed what was evil, not by preserving evil in some place of endless torment. He destroyed what was evil by transforming it into the good. That's what the voice from the throne declares at the end of the revelation. Look! I make all things new. That's the atonement. It means at one -ment. That's where we ended the sermon last week and where we end it every week, the atonement. That on the night he was betrayed, the angel of Yahweh, who is the word of God, who is the judgment of God, who is the will of God, our high priest, and the slaughtered lamb, he took bread and he broke it saying, this is my body, which is for you. And he took a cup, saying, this cup is, is the covenant in my blood. And then, and then, when they were all asking, what now? He did not leave like a list of instructions or a list of laws or rules or procedures. He didn't leave some sort of worldly government. He didn't even explain it. He just said, eat it. My body. And drink it. My blood. In the morning, 
he was crucified on a tree just outside the walls of old Jerusalem, which the Jews believe was built on the very side of the Garden of, of Eden. On that tree of knowledge and life, Jesus bled for us as he cried, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. That's the atonement. And then he said, it is finished. And that's the great mystery. He has united and is uniting all things in himself, Ephesians 1.10. Having broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, Ephesians 2.14. Making one body, verse 4, under one God, Father of all who is over all, through all and in all. That's the atonement. For thousands of years we've tried to explain it. But Jesus didn't say explain it. He didn't say understand it. He said Eat it! His disciples ate it. And then they testified. St. Paul writes, by works of the law, that's what we can understand, explain, and do. By deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified, that is, made right. Romans 3.20. In Ephesians he writes, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this faith, this, is not of yourselves. It's not your doing. It's the gift of God, not by works that none should boast. In other words, your faith does not create God's grace. The atonement. But God's grace creates your faith. In 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus bore our sin, which is faithlessness, and gave us his righteousness, which is faithfulness, faith in God, who is love. John writes, for God so loved the world, not some of the world, the world. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son, in order that all the believing in him, that's a literal translation, might not be lost, but might have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. He who believes is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Think about that. We have all not believed and were therefore condemned. But upon believing, we are no longer condemned. No longer damned, but undamned. Because we trust in the name of Jesus. The name means God is salvation. To believe God is salvation is the substance of heaven. To not believe that God is salvation is the substance of hell. It's the outer darkness where men weep and gnash their, their teeth. But your belief or your lack thereof does not determine whether or not God so loved the world. And the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world. In other words, the atonement is not dependent on your belief. Your belief is dependent on the atonement. That's how God creates belief. He bleeds for us to make us want to bleed for him 
and for each other, like members of one body, all bleeding for each other. To want to love, to want to love, is called faith. So Jesus hung on the cross outside the walls of old Jerusalem, and he cried, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. See, we're forgiven before we even know what, we, what sin is. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he cried, it is finished. And now this is a mystery hidden for ages and generations. It's always been finished. Uh, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. We're going to read that, Revelation 13, 8. So Jesus Christ, it is finished, delivered up his spirit, there was a great earthquake. We don't know how many died. Maybe 7,000, and all the walls came tumbling down. Uh, first were the walls around the heart of a Roman centurion. A Roman centurion who had just crucified him, who dropped to his knees and began to worship. And then the walls of Hades itself. Matthew records that the tombs were opened, and saints, dead saints, came out of the tombs. And then in a generation, the walls of old Jerusalem, they were literally plowed into the ground in 70 A.D. And still today, the dividing walls of hostility are, are tumbling down. Or maybe I should say they're dissolving, like an illusion, like a, a world that suddenly vanishes when you wake from a nightmare. Well, anyway, this is where our message ended last week and, and every week. Jesus announces the atonement. My body broken, my blood shed. We all wonder what now, and he says, eat it. Just eat it, eat it. Don't you make me repeat it. Yeah, don't you make me repeat it. You remember last week, right? That was the point of the sermon. Eat it. Eat it. And then 40 days later, having risen from the dead, he appeared to his disciples and said, prophesy the mystery. Actually, Acts 1 verse 7 reads like this. He, the resurrected Christ, as 40 days later, said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. That means the revelation is not a calendar. But you shall receive power, that's what you get from food, right, when you eat it, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and to the ends of the earth. Then he was lifted up and a cloud, a cloud, a crazy sight, cloud took him out of their sight. He says, eat it and testify. Eat it and be my witnesses. Eat it and prophesy the mystery. Be my witnesses. So, so that's your job. How you doing? <laughs> when was the last time you, you, you witnessed? How, how did it go? I mean, close your eyes for a moment and just ask yourself this question. What keeps me from witnessing to, to my neighbor? What? Why don't I witness more? Hopefully you're constructing a list in your mind. 
just remember it. We're talking about witnessing. It's what Revelation 10 and 11 are all about. And that's the interlude between the sixth and the seventh trumpet. The sixth of the trumpets have sounded. The seventh hasn't trumpet sounded yet. The walls of the world are tumbling down, and surprisingly, nobody repents. And then John sees the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, who must be Jesus, descend with this scroll in his hand. The scroll contains the word of God, and the angel is the, the word of God. He stands on the land and sea, and he swears that time will be no more, but in the days of the seventh trumpet call, the mystery of God would be fulfilled. He hands the scroll to John, and he says, eat it, and prophesy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, says the Revelation, chapter 19. So John ingests it, John digests it, it's, it's bitter in his stomach and sweet on his lips. John is a witness. That's Revelation chapter 10. Uh, chapter 11, he's told to measure the temple. It's more than just a sanctuary in old Jerusalem. We talked about it's the new Jerusalem coming down. It's the body of Christ that bears witness to Christ, just like your body bears witnesses to all the cheeseburgers that you've, that you've ever eaten. He measures the body of Christ, and then we meet the witnesses. Chapter 11, verse 1. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. That's a sign of repentance. Last time we noted that 1,260 days is 42 months, which is three and a half years, which is a broken seven, which refers to all these interesting biblical events and a time of tribulation in this world, kind of like the time in which we live. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth. Not mouths, that's kind of interesting, but it's singular in Greek, one mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut up the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophecy, like Elijah. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire, like, like Moses. You can read about the two olive trees in the book of Zechariah and about the lampstands that are churches in the first three chapters of the Revelation. The oil from the trees lights the lamp that shines the light on the testimony in the temple, the bread of, of the presence. In Scripture we read that nothing is to be established without two witnesses. The two witnesses are like Moses and Elijah who appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus, who represent the law and the prophets, who bear witness to the faith of Jesus, like Paul talks about in Romans 3. The two witnesses are two people, but as we read, they have one mouth. And as we're about to read, they also have one body. You think there are many bodies. There's one body. That's what Paul says time and time and time again in Scripture. 
verse 7, And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them. Now this is our first introduction to the beast. He's already appeared in the book of Daniel. In Daniel 7, four beasts come out of the sea. They appear to be Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. This one looks like Rome and Emperor Nero in particular. The, the dragon calls up the beast from the sea to war against the church. The beast from the sea appears to be like the manifestation of the demonic forces behind human politics. The beast from the land that we're going to meet as well appears to be the demonic forces behind human religion. They ride the great harlot, the great whore, who is also a city. Roman power and Hebrew religion join forces in the city of Jerusalem to crucify Jesus, the angel of Yahweh in the flesh. They are the principies and powers of this world. The Revelation never uses the term Antichrist, but people usually equate the beast with the Antichrist. John talks about the Antichrist in his epistles. Antichrist means imitation Christ. And all human political power, all human religious power, imitates the Christ. Jesus means God is salvation. Well, what do politics and religion promise you? We are salvation. Our laws, our programs, our rituals are salvation. 2,000 years ago, John wrote that the spirit of the Antichrist is in the world already and that many Antichrists have come. And yet Paul mentions a man of lawlessness who will sit on the throne of God in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. Then Paul claims that Jesus will destroy this man with the breath of his mouth and the manifestation of his parousia, his coming, his presence. For 2,000 years, people have conjectured as to who this man is. The list has included emperors, popes, reformers, and kings. In the 20th century, Adolf Hitler seemed like the top candidate to most folks because he murdered six million Jews. After Hitler, many thought the obvious candidate was the Egyptian president, Anwar Sadat. As a young man, you know, Sadat admired Hitler for hating the Jews and the Brits because the British defended the Jews and they occupied Egypt. In 1970, Sadat became the president of Egypt. In 1973, he attacked Israel in the Sinai. But surprisingly, to the surprise of everyone, in 1979, he signed a peace treaty, a covenant with Israel. And this was just like a few years before the 40th anniversary of the founding of the nation state of Israel. Many American Christians then were convinced that it fulfilled the prophecy in Daniel 9:27. And so Egyptian Pharaoh Anwar Sadat was the Antichrist. And if not Sadat, it must be Jimmy Carter. Because he's the one that set up the peace treaty in the first place. 
In fact, I still have the book Countdown to Armageddon, 1980's Countdown to Armageddon, on my bookshelf, in which Hal Lindsey uh, explains that clearly Jimmy Carter's a candidate because he's been groomed by the Trilateral uh, Commission, which is obviously pointing to one world government under the authority of the Antichrist, perhaps Jimmy the Antichrist Carter. Boom. In the Left Behind series, the Antichrist is Nikolai Carpathia. He's modeled after Romanian uh, dictator Nicolae Ceausescu. And Romania kind of sounds like a revived Roman, Romania, Roma, Roman Empire, and Nicolae Ceausescu was clearly a, a jerk, so he's a candidate. Well, anyway, back, back to Scripture. The witnesses battle the beast from the bottomless pit. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead body, singular, will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Where their Lord, what city is that, class? Jerusalem. Yeah. Listen closely, modern American Christians, because I really think we need to get this through our thick skulls. Scripture refers to old Jerusalem as Sodom and Egypt. And soon we'll read that the great city is, quote, the whore of Babylon. So before we kind of unquestionably get into all like blessing Jerusalem and stuff, it's worth asking, which Jerusalem are we blessing? The new one that comes down from heaven? Or the one that crucified our Lord? And the prophets? The harlot? <laughs> Sounds harsh, but that's maybe an important question. Verse 8, their body will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies, singular, and refuse to let them, bodies, plural, be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the, the earth, or, or the land, it's also translated, will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on, on the land, or the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them come up here and they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them and at that hour there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to God the God of heaven wow that's what it means to be a witness that's what it means to eat the word and prophesy the mystery. And like I said, that's your job. So, how you doing? If you're not witnessing, why are you not witnessing? According to the Left Behind movies, it should look something like this. The Lord has chosen me to build a house for the sanctuary. 
By the deeds of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For by grace you are saved, through faith, and this is not for yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Got it. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He who believes in the Son is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. In the name of the Son of God. He is the Christ, Jesus. God has chosen this building for his sanctuary. Does a stone building in the Middle East in old Jerusalem. Then the witnesses recite the most gracious and loving words that the human ear has ever heard. Romans 3, Ephesians 2, 2 Corinthians 5, John 3. And then they say the name Jesus. Which means God is salvation. And then when it's like it doesn't work and their patience has run out, they just burn their enemies to a crisp. The words they speak are true. In fact, they are life. However, I think they may be a wee bit undigested. Jesus said, eat it. And then 40 days later, he said, be my witnesses. So anyway, I ask you, what keeps you from being a, a witness? And I wish we had time to kind of discuss this all more together, but I think I can kind of an anticipate it. We talked about this at staff this week, so I put together uh, a list, and, and maybe we can just look at it. Number one, wh wh why, what keeps you, why don't you, what keeps you from being a witness? Number one, I don't know what to say. But do you understand, you actually are the only one that does know what to say. You are to be a witness. A witness testifies to what they have witnessed. And only you and Jesus in you can do that. Witness to what you have witnessed. 
And that's why I think there are at least two witnesses, all eat one gospel cheeseburger and each digests and manifests that cheeseburger in a unique and indispensable way. You are a unique and indispensable member of the body of Christ. You are a unique and indispensable witness. Number two, I don't know all the answers. I don't know. Well, then testify to what you do know. And then say, I don't know all the answers. You cannot testify to the truth, who is Jesus, by telling lies and making up answers. And nobody knows all the answers except Jesus, who is the answer. Faith is, this is so important, faith is not lying. So if you feel like you're lying, stop and bear witness to the truth in you. That's called honesty. <laughs> Number three, I don't like selling stuff. You're not selling stuff. And if you think you're selling stuff, it's not the gospel. The gospel's free, and yet it's worth uh, the very lifeblood of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you make the gospel dependent on any created thing, it's not the gospel. The gospel is the word of God which creates all things. And the pinnacle of creation is faith in you which is the judgment of God in you, which is love himself sitting on the throne in the sanctuary of your own soul. Number four, I'm not good at arguments. Well, ask a judge. What does he want from a witness? Arguments? To testify is, is not to argue. Witnesses don't argue. I mean, it's good to have a logical pre defense prepared for the hope that is in you, but you have a defense attorney uh, who can win any argument against a prosecuting attorney who's the devil, who's Satan, but the angel didn't say eat it and argue. The angel said eat it and prophesy. That's the testimony of Jesus. And number five, I might lose my faith. No, you won't. Not if it's faith. Faith is not the result of some human argument. Faith is the gift of God and it's eternal. This is the victory that conquers, that overcomes the world, writes John, our faith. That's why the 144,000 in the vision are sealed. And I think that's part of why John is told to measure the temple. To him who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. You are the temple, says Jesus. You're the temple and it's already been measured. So don't stress. Number six, we said, well, it's too much responsibility. Well, if you think it's your responsibility, I don't think you're testifying to the Christ. What are you testifying to? The imitation Christ. The Antichrist. You're not testifying to God as salvation, but testifying that you and your judgment are salvation. That you are the atonement. 1 John 2, 2, John wrote, Jesus Christ is the atonement, the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. The atonement, uh, the atonement is not dependent on your ability to respond. Your ability to respond is dependent upon the atonement. To repent is not to make forgiveness happen, but to believe that forgiveness has happened. When I witness in fear and shame as if, as if forgiveness, 
might not happen. I testify that it has not happened and we need to somehow make it happen. Even if I say Jesus, which means God is salvation, I testify that God is actually not salvation. If I testify in fear as if it were my responsibility, I don't testify to Jesus. I testify to Mises. Me is salvation. Number seven, the gospel doesn't feel like good news. Well, if it doesn't feel like good news, maybe the gospel that you believed is not good news. Maybe it's not good. And maybe it's not news. I mean, it's probably a threat. You know, the principalities and powers of this world run on threats. That's how government works. That's what we all assume, a system of threats. The gospel's not a threat, but an announcement that delivers us from all threats. It's an announcement that atonement has been made and all is forgiven. That's the good news. But if you don't hear the good news and digest the good news, well, that can result in some very bad things. If you don't believe that God has paid, you'll try to pay. I read about an Indian Christian man who found a young woman collapsed on the shores of the Ganges, kneeling by the side of the river, sobbing uncontrollably. He, he bent down and he asked what was wrong, and through sobs and tears, he said, the problems in my home are too many. My sins are too heavy on my heart. And so I offered the best I have to the goddess Ganges, my firstborn son. She had just thrown her baby into the river, trying to pay. All the worst sins, I think maybe all sin, is trying to pay for that which cannot be bought. Life, e eternal. Now I'm convinced that the goddess Ganges does not have her baby. Jesus has her baby. But wouldn't you have liked to have shown up just a few minutes before to tell her the news? Sweetheart, you don't have to pay. God has already paid. Well, this actually happened to my friend Phil preaching in India years ago. He met a woman at one of his rallies. But you see, this is my point. We don't have to postulate some place of eternal torment. People that think they have to pay are already in torment in bondage to the accuser. The outer darkness where men weep and gnash their teeth is for people that think they have to pay. People that don't believe that they are forgiven. And, and you get to tell them, a witness, no, your sins have been forgiven you. Repent! That means change your mind and believe the gospel. You see, the good news really is the very best news. It destroys the illusion that creates your own hell and delivers you into the reality that is the kingdom of heaven. Number eight, maybe you think to yourself, well, sometimes it just seems unkind. Well, pestering people who don't, you don't know, people you don't know with pamphlets and surveys of public events in order to justify yourself, feel better about yourself, well, that does seem kind of unkind. I know that God uses programs like that at times. But he says to all of us, 
Love your neighbor, your neighbor, the people that are around you. And the most enjoyable way to love a neighbor is to what? Just tell them good news. I mean, you just do that naturally, right? And they'll believe you. Why? Because you're their neighbor. You have a relationship with them. They probably won't believe me, and and maybe they shouldn't believe me. Why? Because I'm a pastor. That's part of an institution that obviously has ulterior motives, like fixing the budget and getting more seats filled up with behinds, that, that sort of thing. But, but I think they'll believe you. But yeah, sometimes witnessing does seem a little unkind. And let's be honest, this seems more than a little unkind. I mean, that does seem a little unkind, right? Romans 2.4. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And you see, that's what's so weird about Revelation chapter 11. People are terrified, but then they all give glory to God. And in the next verse, the seventh trumpet, everyone repents. And so you see this fire that, that comes from the mouth of this body, this body of Christ, must be some sort of unusual and holy sort of, sort of fire. And, and, and now it might be helpful to remember that the guy who's writing this revelation down is named John, the son of thunder. And you remember from Easter that Jesus gave him that nickname because it appears that James and John had some anger management issues. In Luke 9, James and John asked Jesus if they can call down fire upon the Samaritans like Elijah. That comes from 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elijah does call down fire on some Samaritans until the angel of Yahweh shows up and tells him to cut it out. So John asked Jesus if he can call down fire on his enemies and then the fire of God turns and descends upon John for Jesus turns to him and rebukes John with words that burn like fire. He says, you do not know what manner of spirit, pneuma, breath, you are of, John. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy but to save. Save us from what? Our sin. What sin? It's trusting our judgment instead of God's judgment. It's believing we are salvation instead of God is salvation. It's faith in Mises instead of Jesus. It's faith in the imitation Christ, the spirit of the Antichrist who wants to seize the throne in the temple of your own soul. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul writes that Jesus will destroy this Antichrist with the word of his mouth, a fire that like rides upon his breath. Well, Jesus speaks words of fire. John ingests those words of fire. He digests those words of fire. The the word burns the Antichrist in John, the Antichrist that takes the throne uh, and the temple of John's soul. The word, well, it must have been bitter in John's stomach, don't you think? And then it was so sweet on his lips. We know him as the apostle of love. 
bitter in John's stomach and then sweet on his lips, that means it was kind. To digest the word is to be humbled by the word and then speak the word. And like John mentioned at Easter, John's request was answered. He did call down fire on Samaria. You can read about it in the book of Acts. Peter and John baptized Samaria in the Holy Spirit. That's fire. But if you haven't digested the word, don't speak the word. Over and over in the gospel, there are people that want to testify to Jesus, and Jesus asked them not to. I think that's because they haven't digested the word. Do you know who the first person that is told by Jesus to, to testify to him? You know who that, that, the first person in the synoptic gospels is that is told to testify? The garrison demoniac. All he knew, the only thing he knew is God is salvation. Do you know who the first person told to testify? Who is the first person told to testify in the Gospel of John? She's a woman, sixth husband, and get this, a Samaritan. And just think about it. The word was bitter in her stomach, wasn't it? Six husbands, honey. And then it was so sweet on her lips. We're forgiven. It's not my word like fire, says the Lord. The fire is not punishment for refusing to believe the word. The fire is the word. God is one. God is love. God is a consuming fire. Love is a consuming fire. And Jesus is the word of love. He's the kindness of God, the kindness that leads us to repentance. But if you think that that means that grace won't burn, oh, you're just profoundly wrong. It does burn. It burns the Antichrist. It burns the spirit of the Antichrist sitting on the throne in the temple of your own soul. It burns your ego. And that's why the people of the land are tormented by the word of the witnesses. Number nine. All fail. <laughs> Sorry, but yeah, right, correct. <laughs> Maybe you notice that the two witnesses are killed by the Antichrist. They fail. They can't make the whole church thing work. They can't make it work. John's exiled to the island of Patmos, writing to seven little churches that in so many have ways have failed, and yet they're called to conquer. None of the disciples appear to conquer. I mean, none of them get a great retirement package or a raise, and all, except for maybe John, are slaughtered by the beast whom they battle against. John's brother James is beheaded in Acts chapter 12, like right at the very start. Peter is crucified upside down in Rome under Nero, top candidate for Antichrist. St. Paul is martyred. In fact, that's where we get our word witness. Marturas in Greek is translated witness and martyr same or yeah martyr and witness same same thing and, and it's not just that their bodies died but that they sacrificed their egos for the gospel at the end of his life sitting in a jail cell Paul writes that all had deserted him you you can read that in second Timothy you see I think he felt like a failure He didn't know he was writing the Bible. 
And yet he kept writing. He testified. And I think that's what made them such incredible witnesses because they were obviously no longer witnessing to their ego. Me is salvation. They were witnessing to God is salvation. God is his salvation who saved me from myself. My old self. They, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but they loved Jesus when he seemed to be good for nothing, just good. In the same way Jesus testified to his father when he seemed to be good for nothing, just good. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? You see, he did not understand, and then into your hands I commit my spirit. That's faith. That's faith. And behold, it's not good for nothing, it's everything. That's faith. And he gives it to us through his witnesses. Well, the witnesses are killed by the Antichrist. They fail. Or maybe I should say their flesh fails, their ego fails, but the word does not fail. Next verse. At that hour, there, there was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. The rest were terrified, gave glory to the God of heaven. Next verse. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. We preached about this, remember? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become... It's become, okay? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying, the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. The ark of his covenant is his judgment. And his temple is you. The imitation Christ is no longer on the throne. The lamb is on the throne in the temple of your own soul. Remember the blue dots, the souls we've been talking about for a couple months? And this is the end which we saw in the beginning. Remember chapters four and five. This is the end for evil has been destroyed and the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ and it has happened through the proclamation of the atonement through the mouth of the witnesses which is us. So number 10, maybe you say it won't work. But it's the only thing that will work. Legislation, programs, rituals, armies, governments, movements won't work. But the word will work. And already has worked. The, the word will not return void. Even when, especially when, it rides out on your tongue. I heard this story from Tony Campolo, who heard it from Millard Fuller, who was a friend of Jimmy Carter and the founder of Habitat for Humanity. I checked it a couple times with Campolo. After Reagan's landslide election in 1980, um, 
According to the story, Carter really struggled with depression. A struggling economy, the Iran hostage crisis, and a landslide defeat all made him feel like a failure as a president. And on top of that, many of the people in his own denomination thought he was the Antichrist. I mean, that sucks, right? (laughs) One day, this friend said, Jimmy, is there anything that you feel good about? And Carter said, well, I don't know. I guess I do feel pretty good about the Middle East Peace Accord. The The friend said, well, okay, actually, what I mean is, did you do that thing that you promised that you'd said you'd do when you went into the office? You told me that you had told God that if anyone spent the night in the White House that you would share Jesus with them. Did, did you do that? Carter thought for a moment and he said, well, yeah, actually, I think I did. And he went on to share with this friend about a night in 1976 when Anwar Sadat spent... Uh, the evening, the night at the White House, he said that that night he got up in his pajamas, grabbed his Bible, went down the hall, knocked on the door on Sadat's room. Sadat answered the door. Carter asked him if he could talk for a minute, and Sadat invited him in, and those two sat down on the edge of Sadat's bed. And Jimmy told Anwar about their father in heaven and how much he loved each of them, and what he had done for both of them, told him about Jesus. According to the story, that night when Jimmy finished his testimony, the two of them sat next to each other and prayed to the Prince of Peace. I don't know if Sadat would have called himself a a Christian or not, but But we do know that the next year Anwar Sadat just shocked the world by going to Israel and giving a passionate speech for the cause of peace. And the year after that, he won the Nobel Peace Prize for tearing down dividing walls of hostility. And the year after that, the Middle East Peace Accord was signed. A few years after that, he was gunned down by Islamic fundamentalists for his gracious and loving views. So if Anwar Sadat was the Antichrist, that's how Jimmy Carter conquered him. Not with armies, not with legislation, not with governments, not as the president of the principality and power that we call the United States of America, but as Jimmy, the son of a peanut farmer, sitting next to Anwar, the son of an Egyptian store clerk, and just telling him why he liked Jesus because Jesus liked them. He ate the scroll and prophesied the mystery and conquered the beast. So Jesus says, eat it and testify. Romans 12, we will overcome, we will conquer by the blood of the lamb And the word of our testimony. Dark cups are wine, light cups are juice. And they're both 
fire. Amen. Hey, and at the end, I just want to say that I'm really grateful for you, the sanctuary. Because you know, um, there are a lot of people that testify, well, you really don't need to be saved. There's nothing wrong with you. And there's an awful lot of people that will testify, well, you can be saved if you join our thing and you're part of our group, and then you'll be saved and you can look down on those people that aren't saved. But there really are, in our world right now, especially in our country, few people that testify to the Lamb on the throne. That He's the Savior, and that He has conquered, and that He will conquer, and every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea will worship Him, will adore Him, and will be home. Thank you for testifying. Just your existence is a testimony, and I know it's, it's kind of hard. <laughs> I used to be the pastor of a really big church. <laughs> now I'm a pastor of a small church, but I don't know where our testimony is going. I'm just grateful that you're here and that you're a testimony. I mean, the witnesses end up, I love it that they get killed by the beast, because they go, okay, maybe I'm doing something right. But they get killed by the beast, and yet their testimony in the end conquers all things because it's actually the word of God moving out upon this creation. So I'm grateful for you and I just hope that you would testify. And that's a big church word, so just maybe forget it. I just hope that you would tell people you like Jesus. You don't have to have all the answers. Uh, you just, I mean, maybe it's just that, you know, I, I, I think he likes us. He, he died for us, and he's on the throne. Or maybe it's someone that thinks God doesn't love them and they've been forsaken and abandoned, and the good news, like we talked about a few weeks ago, is, look, I'm, I'm sure you're not a bastard. Our Father is God. Or maybe it's someone that's ready to just kill. They think, I've got to pay. I've got to pay for my sins because they've been trying to fix themselves with drugs and alcohol and lies and everything else in the world. And they think, I've got to, I've got to pay for this because this, this is what Judas did. I have to pay. And you get to tell them the good news. Your sins are forgiven you. Repent. Change your way of thinking. Sorry, I get all worked up. I'm just saying, that's... That's good news. And you don't have to have all the answers. I mean, maybe it's just a verse. Like, well, I, 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 I do believe he makes all things new. Or as in Adam all dies, so in Christ will all be made alive. I can't explain all of it, but, but he loves you. In other words, all I'm saying is, eat it and testify. In Jesus' name, amen.